0: Hello and welcome to Minted Dialogue, episode number 155. This interview is with Robert Hernandez, Assistant Professor of Professional Practice at the USC Annenberg School for Communication. In this conversation, Robert and I discuss the state of journalism, how students of journalism getting prepared for the new world of journalism, the relative importance of personal branding, and the opportunities that the latest new technologies and tools represent for journalists. Among other topics, we also look at how digital advertising needs to evolve, It's a fascinating interview in that journalists have been and continue to be at the forefront of the digital revolution. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset. That's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to to Dialogue. Piped in from sunny, I hope it's sunny, Robert. Sunny California. Robert Hernandez, someone I met, had the pleasure of meeting at the Global Editors Network 2015 Summit in Barcelona. And Robert was on stage talking about uh, the digital and journalism with great emotion and passion. So I wanted to have you on the show. So Robert, thanks for coming on. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset?
1: Well, thank you for having me, and it's good to to be here with you. Uh, I am a digital journalism professor at uh, USC Annenberg, which is uh, in Los Angeles, California, and it is, in fact, sunny and beautiful. Um, And my focus is how do I use technology, digital, emerging technology for journalism? That is very much part of my mindset, but really my mindset is empowering our community to tell their stories. My community clearly is, is from a journalistic perspective to empower journalists to tell the stories of the community, but to really democratize the ability to tell those stories. And if it's the stories told in paper or in pixels, that's that's what I want them to, to use. So,
0: so in a sense, Robert, you are at the cutting edge of two areas that have gone undergone ridiculous revolutions one of them is journalism and the other one is education so uh talk us through i mean some kind of top lines how you how you've seen both of these really uh migrating or changing or revolutionizing and how you've experienced them
1: well, you know, that's a great question in terms of my perspective. My my first professional job was for a newspaper, uh, uh, the Hearst-owned San Francisco Examiner. The, the Hearst company owned this newspaper, and actually it sold it and gave it away when I got hired. Hmm. Um, it was sold for a dollar, and it's complicated, but I got hired when the paper was basically over. It was one of the most historic papers. It was the flagship uh, paper for the Hearst Company, uh, nicknamed the monarch of the dailies. And that's how I got started in a newspaper. They're working on the website. And we had nothing to lose. We had nothing to lose. Digital was hadn't bust in the first bust. There was a lot of excitement experimentation. And we were the underdog. The newspaper was an afternoon paper and it was the underdog anyway. But what that really taught me was, let's experiment, let's have fun. In the name of journalism, with the pride of our community, of San Francisco, what can we make here? And I think that first start, that first job with nothing to lose, um, really influences my work. Hmm. Um, From there, I've been always trying to find a workplace which has the swagger or the courage to, to try to innovate and be creative with nothing to lose. Um, and it's it's been in me as I've worked in different news organizations, all digital. I've worked on mainly newspapers, but on the digital side, and somehow my career and my work led me from the newsroom to the classroom. I've been a professor at USC for six years, and when they invited me out to interview, I was more doing a favor to a colleague who, who was a professor there. I didn't think at my age that I'd won I'm ready to be a professor in two. They would want me to be a professor. I had nothing to lose. So I didn't pull any punches. And lo and behold, they liked it. And I liked uh, the, the chemistry that I felt. And they invited me to become a professor. I think they didn't do a good background check. But hey, <laughs> I'm in there. And I figure at some point they're going to kick me out. Might as well have fun and innovate and disrupt as much as possible. So uh, that's... That first job influences uh, how I carry myself in the classroom. I want my students to experiment and to, to not care about the grade, more care about the knowledge that they're gaining through my class, through the projects that we do, through you know, experimentation and iteration and failure as well as success, right? Um, so I've seen both those disruptions and see how they really influence me. And I find that that uncertainty is where I like to be. It would be very, very, very boring if I were a journalist 20 years ago. It would be very, very boring if I were a professor 20 years ago where I had all the answers and all I was doing was going through the motions. Mm. Being in this place where it's disruptive and continues and will always be disrupting and disruptive, constantly changing, that to me is the exciting part because I can come up with an answer right now, today, and two weeks, two months, two years, completely different. Mm. Uh, and that's that exciting part. How do I come up with solutions? How do we, how do we um, address these concerns? The same concerns that are always constant to tell the stories of our community, to inform our community, to put our lives in context so we can be informed citizens in a democratic society. Those values of journalism don't change, but how we tell those stories, how we do reporting, how we distribute those stories, how we engage with our community changes and continues to change, right? All
0: right, so if we just unpack this, the, the notion of, of teaching, first of all, since you don't come from a teaching background, but like everybody, you kind of went to school. So you know what it's like to be taught poorly and you and you have your favorite <laughs> teachers. When you're going in now with Journalists, but you know, or students in, in most schools, the the screen is there, and so wh- as much as you're talking about digital, you're also having to deal with digital. So, how yes. what's your strategy for dealing with digital in that respect as a teacher?
1: That that's that's very a big challenge, and I know some folks who have banned laptops. I think uh, Clay Shirky, one of the leading digital yeah. thinkers, uh, wrote about banning laptops in his class, um, and if I'm going to preach and live in this world where screens are present. Then I have to know how to essentially compete with them. My my competition is Facebook. Now, why would a student turn to Facebook? Well, I found for a variety of different reasons, but one of them is that I'm boring, mm-hmm. right? So my make my challenge uh, a my challenge is to keep them entertained and engaged mm-hmm. and if you're leaning in to my conversation to my presentation then you're not paying attention to that screen and you're engaging now am i going to have them all the time 100 percent of the time mm-hmm. for the 15 weeks no we put in some respectable uh rules and guidelines so we have mutual respect of we'll have breaks you can answer your phone then mm-hmm. um when i have a guest please if if, if mm-hmm. you're not taking notes please close your laptop But the reality is they're taking notes. Most of the time when they go to their laptop is because I made a reference to something that they don't know about that they immediately Google. Mm -hmm. Right. That is the social construct that we have. One of many where I don't know that. Let me go find out what that is. Mm -hmm. If I make a reference to a news story or an Internet meme and they don't know it, they're on it. So I have to catch them and tell them, wait, 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 wait to the break. It's worth it. But don't do it right now. And
0: presume, right. and, yeah. And then you also, you know, put it vibrate and there's other some other respectable norms. And and I, I mean, I hear you. At the end of the day, and even you're, of course, if you're saying something that was online or a digital tool, you kind of want them to be using it and, and learning about it. Otherwise, it becomes surreal. But at the same time, you know, the, you you your your challenge is to make sure that you're always capturing the attention. Just as a journalist has to capture the attention of
1: a reader. Exactly. Uh, and, and we I have to use all these different techniques in front of me to, to really hook the story, right? If we look at it in newspaper terms, you need a good headline, a good lead. Uh, if you're going to go all the way to the jump, you need a good quote that takes you over to the jump, so you flip to the inside pages. Got to have good SEO, got to have good content as well. And that's how I look at my lectures. I, I'm fortunate uh, that... I grew up with the web. I'm not a digital native, per se. Uh, I think I'm on the line there. But uh, I, I know my adult life before the Internet. But since the Internet, I my humor is very much Internet memes. Mm. I make them. I participate. I, I participate in no viral, all the stuff that, that, that makes up the Internet. Oh, and that just naturally comes through in my talks. I use a lot of animated GIFs and mm. uh, reference jokes and th- some jokes they may not get because they're not from the 80s like I was. Like apparently they don't know what Ghostbusters is. What? I, I know, right? Um, but uh, I use all these things. And, and I know that my job, although the traditional job, and very often their expectation coming in is that I am going to lecture for 90 minutes, they need a lesson, and there will be a quiz. I don't like that. That is boring. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is lecture a little bit, get them to think about things, and then let's put, roll up our sleeves and get our hands into the code or holding an audio recorder or a video camera and record something for the web opposed for something for TV. Um, the classes that I've done now, these experimental classes, where uh, in the fall I'm teaching virtual reality in journalism last year it was google glass in journalism the year before that was augmented reality in journalism these classes are almost like hackathons where in the first day of class i'm setting up the tone of the culture of the class that to me is the most important part the framework of the class where yes i know some stuff i technically know more stuff than you dear student But in this class, we're going to figure this out together because I don't know what the hell VR and journalism is and could be. Mm -hmm. And your perspective and the perspective of the engineering student and the perspective of the gaming student mixed in with the journalism perspective, something magical is going to happen. So I frame in the first day of class for these particular courses, we know what we want and we know what our outcome is. We want to do something cool with virtual reality and journalism. What that is... I don't know. All right. right. Uh, I've given them
0: that space to, to help define it with me as equals. Yeah, totally cool. What, what um, strikes me, though, is at a certain point, these students are, let's say, young, knowledgeable, voracious uh, learners. So as much as we might want to teach them, they might do it naturally, experiment. The challenge is integrating media companies as journalists who are not necessarily quite as prone for experimentation. So how do you deal with that sort of the cyberpass? You as, you know, let's say the gregarious, experimenting Robert Hernandez, you're okay, you go, but you go into a fine institution and the chief editor who's my age, who's not a digital native by any means, and you've got to tell them, oh, dude, we've got to do some virtual reality.
1: Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Well, let me let me also put one thing in context. One of the biggest things I learned right away when I became a professor is the false notion that students are digital and are experimenting and have embraced technology. Mm-hmm. I would say some of the most uh, tech-averse uh, folks that I've met have been my students. They come into my classroom saying, I don't know anything about technology. You're going to have a hard time. Plus, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'm going to be... Arms. Uh, foreign war correspondent or write for vanity fair or which is wonderful and uh, and I have to kind of hold their hand and shove them at the same time to introduce them how to use the technologies which they are using but they're using them as civilians how to use these technologies twitter and facebook and other things for professional journalistic storytelling um so that's one thing. And once I get them going and I get them bit by the bug and they get excited about that stuff, the next thing and really the most important thing is teaching them how to constantly learn, how to teach themselves to embrace the unknown and problem solve in that unknown. Right? As things are being disrupted, whatever I tell them now is not going to be you know, accurate in, in two years, let alone two months or two weeks Right? because it's constantly changing. So I need to teach them and instill in them that mindset of how do I constantly teach myself? How do I constantly keep learning in this moving target? Well,
0: how on earth do you do that?
1: Well, oh, You just have them do a couple things. I, I, I have them experiment. One, I demystify technology. Whether it's HTML or wearable, you just break it down in a way that it doesn't look like a magic machine, like a dark box that has magical things come out of it. And by doing that, they start to see, you know, you know, that scene in The Matrix where he starts to read the code. Right, right. It all the come comes in. away and you see the reality of things. That's that first goal. This is not a magical thing that only a handful of people can do. This is an incredible tool that many of us can use, especially for journalism. And so that's, that's the main set. The other thing, and this is something that I learned with my career in, in journalism, answering your, 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 your main question that you asked, um, I left journalism I left newsrooms. I haven't left journalism. I left the newsroom because I was so frustrated pitching these ideas to my bosses that would not understand, that would think that I'm crazy, but they would pitch them back to me two years later, after the New York Times had done it, right? So I needed a break from that frustrating cycle of being ahead of the curve, but being deemed crazy because I saw what was coming. Right. And so I went to uh, academia, I went to the classroom because I thought, what I need is an army of people that see these things coming. And how can I produce that army of people? Well, in the classroom, with these students, right? Not every student's going to be this way. It's the bell curve, Always. But if I can empower these students to see what is coming and instill in them the values and qualities of of journalists, right? Why do we do wearables? Why do I want to do virtual reality? Not because it's cool. That's hey, It's cool. But it's because I can tell stories in an engaging way. I can create empathy in a new and amazing way. If I instill that, then they have that curiosity and that drive with purpose to use this technology. And in doing that, with that confidence that is slowly built up, when they walk into a newsroom, they're going to be frustrated, but they're going to know that they're right and they're not crazy, and they're going to start educating and training the people around them. That's one of the biggest changes uh, that's happening in our industry right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the time frame to be an incoming journalist to being an influencer or a leader in the newsroom has been compressed depending on the skill set that you know and how you can communicate that skill set with your peers and with your bosses can you manage up and manage uh, horizontally Um, so I warn them that many of them are going to get frustrated Mm -hmm. and I talk to many of them after they graduate I mentor students that are formerly my students at USC or people that I've met in the industry um, to talk about the frustrations and the challenges, but to remind them why they got into this business and the opportunities that they have to influence the places they're frustrated with, with that skill set, with that knowledge, with that context of using cool stuff, cool technology, but with purpose.
0: So, Robert, in, in the way you, you teach and approach teaching, to what extent do you encourage that each individual should be pushing their own personal brand?
1: You know, the reality is that uh, being found on the internet, being known for your work as an individual, uh, to have a reputation that people uh, respect and and turn to and have confidence in, that's an an old experience. That's an old uh, requirement to be a good journalist. But in the modern age, uh, that is essential. So I do teach my students how to set up their own websites and their social networks and how to use all these new tools to be found on the Internet, right? You have, if you write a great story, that's fantastic. But if no one can find it, if no one reads it, then it's a waste, right? So the reality is you need to know SEO and you need to know how to brand yourself And you need to know how to put your stuff out there and build your individual profile. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you get blinded by it. And and the truth is, your profile will increase if you join another news organization. Their credibility will be lent to you, and that will increase your profile. But if you've built your profile, your profile and credibility will increase the organization's profile and credibility. And the reality is now, you don't need to work at the New York Times to be successful. You can start up your own news organization, whether it's social media only or blog-based. There are ways of doing it, podcasts. There are ways of doing it and and creating quality journalism to serve your community. But one essential ingredient is that, that personal brand. Now, I will tell you, there are colleagues and friends of mine, uh, journalists that get repulsed by the idea of of the concept of brand and in marketing themselves Mm -hmm. and if it makes everyone feel comfortable let's go back to the traditional term of credibility what am i known for and that's what we should focus on because that's what makes a quality journalist can you believe me based on my track record can you trust me with the information I'm I'm giving to you. Can you trust me as I try to tell your story and then deliver your story? Credibility. And credibility is built over time. And credibility, in all honesty and reality, is found when someone Googles you. Mm -hmm. They gotta look for you and see your work and your track record. Can they trust you? Is Is there something there, or is this person just talking out of one side of their mouth, right? This is not the end-all be-all. Uh, social media, digital footprints—it's not the end-all be-all, but it is uh, a required ingredient in, in, in modern journalism. So, in successful modern journalism, for a journalist to have a strong, long-lasting career.
0: Yeah, and so we, you have all these different tools and technologies are out there that you're dealing with, Robert. Uh, whether it's v, you know virtual reality, augmented reality, QR. Uh, Google Glass, you have so many different things. And so if I'm a student, I could feel very quickly overwhelmed by the choices that are out there. How would you provide some direction as to where I should start? You know, I mean, you take every one of my classes, of course. H- however, you know, the world, we, the time is limited. We have to make choices. And as a journalist, how does one enrich one's story the best? Your, or How do you approach the selection of this myriad options that we now have and are going to have tomorrow even more in, in order to create, as you were saying, these better stories?
1: It's, well, first, it's my job to play with all these emerging different technologies, technologies that are here or coming down the line or off in the distance that I see in the horizon three years out. That's my job. That's why I'm very fortunate to play with those things. But that shouldn't be the job of the journalist telling the story of the community. The job of the journalist telling the stories of the community needs to adapt and use and become familiar with these new tools that are present now, that help them to do their journalism now. Now, their journalism means different things between different reporters, between a sports reporter and a business reporter, how they use social media is different. But they use social media. Will either of them use virtual reality? Not right now. That's not mainstream. But maybe to start thinking about that. The question, the, the way I usually talk to my students and when I do consulting for newsrooms and or news organizations is not to go chasing every new emerging piece of technology that's out there. No, that's, that's not efficient. But really, what is your audience? What is your focus? What is the content you are producing? So, if you're a business company, a business news organization that is different from an entertainment organization or a lifestyle organization, you really have to pick and choose these these different types of technologies and how you apply them differently. So, So, there's not one answer except choose wisely to reflect your brand, your credibility, your direction, your focus, right? Don't force technology if you're not using it, but... Don't quickly dismiss technology. At least become aware about it uh, and, and see what's there and file it away for later if and when the time comes that the best way to tell your story, a business story, is through virtual reality. And let me just do a little side note there. There is, I believe, the Wall Street Journal did a virtual reality experience about the NASDAQ where you would put on through... Oculus or Google Cardboard or through their website, you would ride the NASDAQ ticker as it went to the all-time high, right? Who would have thought virtual reality in business? They did. They experimented with it. It was a small feature in their package, but it was a feature nonetheless, right, for them to try out. So when I talk to folks uh, about technologies and where to start, um, I actually point them to a website that I maintain. Uh, The URL is bit.ly. Slash tech and Tools. That's T E C H uh, A N D T O O L S. Uh, and I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes. Sure. But this is a, a collection of about 100 different tools that are free that I think uh, is almost like a safe playground for journalists to kind of dip their toe in technology. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of video things, maybe some audio things, infographics. We've heard about mapping maybe databases, um, just a little bit of different tech and tools to kind of get them aware of, of what's out there. And you might find a tool that you can immediately apply to your daily journalism right now, right? Mm-hmm. There are things like Evernote or Audacity for audio editing. There are collaborative tools like Etherpad or Hackpad, all these different things that are out there that I've kind of seen and I thought, you know, this is worthwhile to share with the journalist. Either to make us more efficient with our note-taking, uh, transcriptions for audio, that's always a popular one, um, or our reporting or our storytelling or our different types of presentation. All those things are out there. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing about this, this page is the tools are free or really cheap, mm-hmm. usually the freemium model. You can embed it onto your, your page so you're not tied to anybody's uh, design or style you get the traffic, you define the contract. So it's a collection of that. And that's usually a great place to start. Just go. Now, again, now that can seem overwhelming. Over a hundred different tools mm-hmm. there that you don't know where to start, just pick one a week. Hell, if that's too much, one a month.
0: Uh-huh. Start just, somewhere.
1: So, just start somewhere. Uh-huh. Have that conversation. Ask. What I recommend in newsrooms is there someone... Uh, nerding out about some emerging technology in your newsroom have them do a lunch presentation oh my gosh you guys i read about virtual reality here's what it is right now let's take 20 minutes to brainstorm what could it be for us i'm not saying we're going to do it but let's think about what what could this technology do for us down the road
0: what i robert what i'd like to ask you is uh you mentioned the journal uh just now uh, it seems, in more common parlance, the obvious articles of interest that have come up and, and have been great experiments that have shown some part of the way, like snowfall. What are yeah. the What are the types of of, or maybe name some other articles or other uh, media that are doing a, an interesting job that you think would be hey inspiring uh, for other people to look at? If you had to cite. Uh, one or two examples
1: sure sure well we all know snowfall snowfall has become a noun a verb an adjective uh to communicate multimedia storytelling and that's about three years old and there are many many others that are out there that are very similar the guardian had a firestorm i forgot the name of it i know fire was in the title uh really beautiful interactive pieces um And there are really high-end, fantastic things and some small, kind of uh, scrappier experimentational pieces. But what I would say, the things that I would point to, uh, are the news organizations that are trying. And I know that sounds almost slip, but they're actually experimenting in small and large ways, right? So I point to the Washington Post. Uh, The Washington Post, I have friends and colleagues that are there that are experimenting Uh, Of course, on, you know, magazine style parallax scroll pieces like Snowfall, sure. Uh, But they're trying to figure out what is journalism on Snapchat. Mm. Uh, I've been preaching to my students and to other folks about this uh, app called Yik Yak, which, you know, it's not for you or me. Uh, It's for college students uh, that anonymously post things, and it's tied together by geolocation. Now, what they're posting is college life. And I don't know about you or what we did in college, there's no proof, uh, but they're talking about college life, drugs, pizza, sex, all that stuff. But intermingled in that stuff, in the, in the flow of information that is very college life focused, you'll see bits of news, uh, a community trying to find out what's going on. By asking each other these questions, I've seen news break there before, long before, two hours before it was on Twitter, three, or four hours before it was covered by the media, happening on on. Excuse me, on the, yeah yeah
0: you mentioned so, you, you mentioned Snapchat, Daily Mail, isn't it the Daily Mail that's doing the Daily
1: Mail? So I don't. I'm sorry, if someone from the Daily Mail is listening, <laughs> but the Daily Mail last and I haven't checked in a while, so maybe it got better, and I apologize if it got better, but when it first launched. What they did was took a text article and ported it over into Snapchat. Now, for those who don't know, Snapchat, the median age of Snapchat, is 18 years of age. And the beauty about Snapchat is that they're quick, expiring images that people send to one another. Right? And Snapchat came out with a channel called the Discover Channel. They partnered up with a variety of different media companies to I allow them to give them a platform to connect with the Snapchat audience. And the Daily Mail has text articles. Literally, it appears the articles that are on their website, they just took that text, made it narrower to fill out, fit the screen, maybe an animated GIF, and then you would read the text. That was really bad. That was very tone-deaf and missing the point. Now, Now, I'll be fair. And not only pick on them let me pick on Yahoo mm-hmm. Yahoo a digital company um, a digital company thought here's an opportunity with snapchat where the audience is average age is 18 how do they present the news to them they get Katie Couric to do video voiceovers traditional broadcast pieces with horrible jokes and puns Katie Couric I'm not gonna judge her age but She's about as old as their mom, right, the average age of a Snapchat user. So someone at Yahoo said, you know what these kids today want on Snapchat? Their mom to read their news to them. (sighs) That doesn't work. What does work? Well, you see Vice, you see uh, National Geographic, you see Comedy Central use very viral video things. But I'll give you another example. This is one that um, they've been doing fantastic work is the Los Angeles County Modern Art LACMA, the museum in Los Angeles. They have made viral Snapchats by embracing the vocabulary, the culture of Snapchat, which again is not for you or me, but really making Mm. fun and enjoying and, and disposable means. Uh, they really embraced that vocabulary and created content for that particular audience that when they when you see a snap from them, you want to see, you know, how they creatively used Beyonce lyrics with this beautiful painting from the Renaissance. All right, so, Sorry. Robert,
0: I wanna, I'll, I'll put, I'll put a, a link into that. I want to get to one more last topic before we close off.
1: Sure.
0: Um, and it's sort of related, because um, th- what I understand is that the at uh, Cannes, uh, WPP announced that it was getting into partnership with the Daily Mail and Snapchat to try and uh, create more engaging content. So I wanted to circle back on one other point, which is advertising, because um, advertising is appearing in, uh, you know, of course, it's in newspapers and brand and newspapers depend on advertisers in many cases. So you, you mentioned in, just before we went live you know how poor some advertising is. Give us your spiel on what uh, advertisers need to be doing when they create their content, their creative.
1: Sure, sure. Well, the thing that we were talking about is that if we look at the innovation that's been in the journalism industry, the media industry, it's all been editorial, new ways to present a story and, and to reach people, uh, how we can come up with new snowfall techniques, if you will. Um, But if we look at the advertising side, there hasn't been much innovation at all. The banner ad has gotten bigger, has gotten more obnoxious. Um, We now are doing sponsored or native ads, essentially trying to trick people into reading advertising. Uh, And that's been our business model, trying to annoy or trick people to fund journalism. That's horrible. Um, But if we think about advertising before, it was classifieds and if I needed to get a job, I would go to the classified section. If I needed to buy a sofa, I would go to the advertising section. That was useful content. I don't know if you remember the yellow pages here in the States. We had the yellow pages, right? It was a bunch of ads for every industry, right? When my pipe broke, I would go to the P section of the yellow pages and look up plumber and I would be looking at tons and tons of ads looking for a plumber to come fix my problem. That was not an annoying ad. That was a lifesaver, right? When advertising is presented as a useful piece of content, useful experience, quality content, it's helpful opposed to an annoyance. Mm -hmm. So my first thing I would say is that we need to create content and experiences in advertising that are useful to the user, not a random assault to try to trick you to not click on this thing right Mm -hmm. why are you going to advertise to me about refining refinancing my home loan if I'm a renter right why are you going to advertise to me about you know um, buying car insurance if I don't have a car right so Mm -hmm. we do have a technology to make these things smarter but we also even if that technology is not there what if we place ads where, for example, next to the temperature? Hey, it's about to rain today. Get a fifty percent off a of raincoat if you go to this hmm. shop. Right? There are ways of creating advertising in a more useful, utilitarian, and a non-annoyance way. I, I, I pitched an idea recently on Twitter that said, if the uh, if we play a video before, uh, if we play an ad before a video. And the user doesn't click on the on the ad, the advertiser should pay. But if the advertiser creates a quality ad where the user do- watches the whole thing, maybe doesn't even click, but watches the whole ad, then that ad should be free. Right. We should charge them for that. <laughs> That's cool. Right. Some sort of incentive for the advertiser to do something more than just, you know, shovelware of annoying coupons or something like that. Make it worthwhile. Yeah
0: and then and then what I mean it makes me think as, as you talk about how some articles in in some sites are written in a way to click as opposed to maybe a more investigative more thoughtful um, piece which isn't all about the number of people who are reading it and it's sort of, but in the end of the day this is is hard di- dichotomy between Getting people and, and having the numbers because that's what the boss needs. That's how, that's how you get paid. And in, in, if that were the case, journalism's need to uncover stories and, and help change people's minds.
1: Yeah, well, there are lots of metrics that we can use, and circulation was the traditional one. How many people, how many newspapers did we give out? Didn't necessarily mean that people read the newspaper, or let alone read a particular article in the newspaper, but that defined our reach. And that is the traditional metric that people have used, but we're trying to find others that are more relevant and more useful. How long did someone spend with your article opposed to just clicking through, right? That's the difference of the clickbait. I'll click on something, but I'll never go back. I won't won't return to you. I'm not a loyal viewer, listener, or supporter. Yeah, I feel,
0: I feel like you just tried to capture me.
1: Yeah, right? And I'm Trick not going to give you my money, but if you become an organization that I turn to for news. And I'll I'll use this as a personal experience, and I'm sure we each have one, but I used NPR, National Public Radio. When they need money, I give money. I care about it. Uh, When you tell me that this piece of journalism that probably got a fraction of uh, the traffic that a Kim Kardashian photo gallery got, But this piece of journalism took a year to work. And you. one of the things that I've picked, and I think I saw it once recently, if you put a price tag, this type of journalism costs $10,000. If you value it, give us some money for this particular project. People would write checks for that. Maybe not a lot of people. But you start to give the opportunity for people to express the support of journalism, quality journalism, Through other means outside of clicking, if you give them a way to write a check to say I support this, right? They're going to they're going to stamp up.
0: Do do you know this term uh, karmic capitalism? uh, That Chip Conley. It's almost like we could talk about karmic journalism.
1: That and 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 it that those karma points those that that reach is more than just traffic, and often is more than just money. But there's value in brand awareness. There's value in. Just the act in the conversation for me to say, you know, I heard this story on NPR today. That is incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. And me saying that phrase did not give them a page click and did not give them an advertising click, but it helped expand their brand and their credibility. Mm -hmm. And we need to value that. We need to clearly find ways to monetize that, but let's not lose sight of how important and how essential that is.
0: Well, it's almost like we started with credibility and we end with credibility. Robert, maybe that's the catchphrase for, the, for our session. So uh, tell us what's the best way for someone uh, to track you down, listen to what you are on about, and follow you.
1: I'm on Twitter, probably a little bit too much, but my Twitter handle is at webjournalist. And you can usually find my work there. If I give a talk, I share my slides for free. I always put it out. Uh, you can also go to my website, webjournalist.org. I have a, it'll redirect to my blog, and on the right hand side, you can see where I'm going to be speaking at. And email or text. Don't beautiful. leave me a voicemail. Do you, do you do that? Let's not do that.
0: Uh, beautiful. So, uh, Robert, thanks for coming to the show up. I'll, I'll be uh, following up and make sure all those, the, uh, the links are in the show notes. Have a great day. Thanks a lot, Robert. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's Mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it on iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. Show